Good day to you, brothers, sisters, friends, and new faces, and welcome to Current Events and Christian Expectations. And today in this podcast, we're going to be talking about me, myself, and I, and the peculiar way that the world promotes self and looks at self. We'll have many scriptures that we read today, and we'll lead off with 1 Corinthians 4, 6 through 7. The other scriptures we'll put in the overview. But with me, myself, and I at the center, let's just dig right in. Thank you, Randy. Thank you. We're looking at not particularly an event, but a current trend that's been going on for some time in the culture. The rise of the selfish transformation of faith and of forgiveness and of love. To wit, believe in yourself, forgive yourself, love yourself. In today's culture, all of these are a starting point. The first place to go to before you can exercise belief or faith in God. But whatever we have by way of faith did not originate with us, but God. And Randy's going to give you a good point on that from 1 Corinthians 4, 6, and 7. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Don't go beyond what is written. And that's part of the uh, burden of this uh, podcast. Because uh, believing yourself, loving yourself, forgiving yourself goes beyond what is written. Hmm. Plus what Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? Absolutely. Now that we have faith, what is its purpose? Did we receive faith to believe in ourselves first and then secondarily, God? The Christian expectation is this. The starting point of all three of these, faith, forgiveness, love, is not self, but God. And the ending point of all three is God as well. As Paul says in Galatians 3, verses 2 and 3, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Faith in God and continuing faith in God is the Scripture way. Reinforced again, Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And of course, some translations have from faith to faith, but it's it's all the same thing because when he finishes, he says the righteous shall live by faith, meaning you start with faith, you go through faith, and you end with faith. It's Mm. nothing but faith all the way from beginning to end, from start to finish. Faith in what? Faith in the gospel, because the context obviously is that. Nowhere in Scripture do we find exhortations or commands to believe in oneself, forgive oneself, or to love oneself. That flies in the face of the philosophy of today. That's right. Uh, What has been happening over the last century or better is taking Christian truths and reforming them to conform to the self. Mm. And the world likes that. Mm -hmm. If I seem to be belaboring this point, it's only because so many people of faith now buy into the psychological babble Mm -hmm. about you've got to believe in yourself to do what needs to be done. So, believe in yourself. Listen to Romans 10, verse 9. 
Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right. We are to believe what God did, not what we did, much less believe in ourselves. And this initiation to believe doesn't start with us, but the Lord. Listen to Acts 16, 14, where Paul is preaching to the women down by the riverside, especially a woman named Lydia. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart mm. to pay attention to what was said by Paul. We don't hear Paul saying, Lydia, the answer to all your problems is believe in yourself. No, no, put your faith in what Paul says, Lydia. That's what's to be done. Let's begin by saying that faith, and please grasp this concept. Let's begin by saying that faith can only be as good as its object. Mm. And the object of my faith is me. I can tell you, based on my own experience of me, that sucks. It's no good. Yeah, if, if the object is crap, yeah, it's going to be crap. It's yeah. not going to work. Uh, you know, uh, if I'm the object of my faith, how worthy and capable am I to justify such faith? So often, when we need faith the most, trusting in ourselves is delusional. Here is a great example from Luke 22, 31 through 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers." Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Peter, just believe in yourself, Jesus says to Peter. <laughs> yeah, he did believe in himself already. And yeah. that was the problem. He honestly believed what he said to Jesus. He would never do that kind of thing. And yet he did. Three times. Three times. Three times, which is a, in the law of Moses, two or three times it's established. You can't believe in yourself. The more you believe in yourself and are convinced yourself, the worse it's going to be for you. There's a, a, a modern day example. There, there, on Saturday Night Live, there used to be a skit uh, um, called Stuart Smalley. And he oh, would come yes, and say, bring, yes. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Absolutely. Well, here's another example, too. The father of the demonized young son, remember that situation? Randy's going to read it here in a second. Shows well the inability to trust in oneself. Mark 9, 21 through 27. And Jesus asked his father, how long has he, this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. By that exorcism, Jesus did what the father asked. He helped his unbelief, mm -hmm. showed him this can really be done. What a great relief it must have been to the father. But remember that expression, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. 
He knew that he lacked faith, not in himself, but in Jesus. His desire is to have full faith in what Jesus can do. Scripture time and time again directs us to look outward and upward as to the direction of faith, not to ourself and inward. Proverbs 3, 5, and 7, verses we've quoted here two or three times in some of our podcasts. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. You know, this is one of those things where you hear people say, well, when I get my act together, I'll come to church. When I finally get right. And that's so Mm self-oriented. Like, let me get myself in order before I come to see God. And it's like, no, come here and let God put you in order. Exactly. God to put you in good order. Yeah. So Proverbs 3, 5, and 7, not even close to believe in yourself. Having faith in ourselves is not a substitute for confidence. And I bring this up because I think sometimes people use faith in yourself. Or what they're meaning is have confidence. But let's understand, in the Bible, we're talking about matters of faith and having faith with confidence. It's different than just having normal confidence. I'll explain the difference after Randy reads Hebrews 10, 32 through 36. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Exactly. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. What he is saying is simply this. You've been persevering in the faith, meaning they've been trusting the Lord through their difficulties, their times, their persecutions. And therefore, they have gained confidence that God can actually bring that through them as they look to him for help. Don't throw that confidence away. And that's a confidence that comes from believing in God, walking with him, and uh, doing his will. Now, confidence in the general sense is like, like this. When I was in the Air Force, I was trained in Morse code. So if I hear Morse code yet today, 60 years later, you know, I, I still recognize did da is A, da did he did is B, da di da did is C, and so forth and so on. And therefore, I have confidence that I know Morse code, but that's because I've learned it, experienced it, and used it. Mm. Now, if I'd had faith in myself to be a major league athlete, I would have failed miserably <laughs> no matter how much I believed that I could do it. Because trust me, the skills we're not there. So this is about knowing our capabilities, especially in matters of faith, not believing in ourselves. For example, uh, Romans 12:3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. There's a measure of faith given to all of us. And we need to be uh, sober-minded about how much faith that is to do the gifts and to exercise them as we should that God has given us and to not go beyond that. Because down in verse 6, Paul says concerning our gifts, if you have a gift, and he starts off with prophecy, then prophesy in proportion to your faith. Hmm. Meaning on a scale of 1 to 10, if you're a 5, then good, that's a 5. Don't say, well, I believe in myself. I believe I can be a 10. (laughs) 
Uh, maybe you will be a 10 one day if you're faithful and God continues to bless. That's because you grow in faith. You grow in doing gifts, all that. Um, but don't go beyond what you have confidence in and what you know you can do in the faith, by your faith. And none of that has to do with trusting yourself. It's about gaining experience and confidence in following the will of God. By doing that, God may very well grant more faith in your gift. What about faith to move mountains? Now, this too is not about what we believe we can do, but what we can do through prayer to God and the faith he can give us for particular petitions. Now, this is a controversial passage, and I'll give you my take on it, but listen to Randy as he reads Mark 11, 20 through 25. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus said to them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Right. No matter how much we go to moving mountains, don't think you get so big at moving mountains that you don't have to forgive. Mm -hmm. Very important spiritual lesson. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe, present tense, that you have received, past tense, received it. Moving mountains. Now, I'm just going to give examples from my life. And by the way, this was, it's interesting because C.S. Lewis, this is one of the passages that he was flummoxed by. Mm. And I forget which writing he talks about it, but he says, I'm not quite sure what that means, but I'm sure he experienced it in his life. And reading other things from him, I'm pretty sure that's the case. For example, when I dropped out of public education in Cincinnati to go be a full-time pastor in a place I'd never been with people. You, no, you were saved from public education. <laughs> okay. You didn't drop out. When I was saved from public education to be put into a different kind there of we go, form. There we yeah. go. Yeah. Um, I never once doubted that that was what I was to do. And we were 15 years in Blanchester. And then the amazing thing was that when I retired from that particular ministry and we, we, were, we had left, I looked back on it. And I can't remember once thinking, well, I need to stop doing this. Obviously, it's not working or God's not with me or whatever. I was moving a mountain. I look back and that was, for me, that was moving a mountain. Mm -hmm. And while I was there, I was listening to, I used to listen to uh, Chuck Colson's Breakpoint. Mm. His little radio broadcast, five minutes, were great. And he had one on, he had a friend who did current events. So what he does is every Sunday at certain times, uh, he takes what's a current event and applies it to the Bible and shows how it's relevant to scripture and preaches it and applies it. And immediately... I believed I could do that. I was praying about it. Can I, Lord, this sounds great. And I was, I don't know how else to say it other than I was given the grace to say, you can do that. And sure enough, you know, the next Sunday I said, coming June, June's going to be here. We're going to do in June, July, and August. We're going to do current events. And what's over the front page of the inquiry, I'm going to preach. And it's going to be that way. I'm going to show you how relevant the Bible is to current events. Never had a problem for 10 years of doing that. Maybe I've done it for 12. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. June, July, and August every year during summer vacation when people were moving about and kids were, you know, this and that. Um, and then here's a recent one. This is interesting. Uh, we had a vacation in Destin three years ago. I had one of my vertigo experiences <laughs> and ended up flying through the air and got wedged between the bathtub and the toilet <laughs> with my feet touching the ceiling. And oh, man, what an experience. 
from that, I developed a hernia. I had a hernia on the left side before. This is on the different side. But, uh, and I hadn't seen the doctor yet, but one night I had pain so bad, I thought I'm going to have to go to the ER. And I got up and prayed about it. And I said, take, Lord, take the pain away. I just, it was, and then all of a sudden, I just knew, it's going to go. I mean, I don't know, explain the experience. It's just an experience. I know it's going to go. And within a moment, it was gone. Mm. I, I went back to bed and slept well. So that's what this is about. It's about those times when God touches you in such a way that you know, I can do this mm. because God has blessed you to have the faith in him to do it. Well, your, your current event experience led to a podcast. It led to a podcast. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And we've been believing here, what, three years now? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So where does such a faith come from? Not from us. We don't believe in ourselves. It comes from him. Keep in mind, we do not live as Christians in a vacuum. Uh, in Acts 17, 28, where Paul is uh, preaching a sermon to the intellectuals on Mars Hill, he quotes them, one of the poets, but it's applying it to God. In him, we live and move and have our being. What he's saying is that we humans, Greeks, Paul, his entourage, we're all immersed in God. God is everywhere at all times, and everybody in some sense is in that sphere of God. But not only this, God is particularly in Christians. Listen to this from Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There you go. God works in us for the faith we need to have, and we have it, both to will, so we'll do what we need to do, and to work for his good pleasure. God is in us. He initiates all of those. We never initiate anything on our own. We don't have grace. God has grace. God gives us grace. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. By the grace of God, I did what I did. And he is in us then. We are in him. He is in us. Every good thing about faith is started not by us, but by God himself, even the faith to move mountains. On the other hand, as a good rabbi would say, <laughs> we have Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, who prayed three times and never got that move the mountain experience. His thorn in the flesh had to stay with him, mm -hmm. but he would be given, guess what? Grace, Grace to endure it. And look, of course, at Jesus in Gethsemane. As always, faith is a journey from sometimes moving mountains to having faith to climb over the mountain with the grace and strength that God provides us to endure. The problem with believing in oneself is this. When we were not Christians, our fleshly self was the object of our faith. But when we became believers, that changed. Here is Randy's reading of Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The new self looks to God alone. And at times, we've all done it, we fall back into the old self, the old flesh, and we have to be brought back to the Lord. It happens. To believe in ourselves, to trust in ourselves, is the wrong way to go. Here's a classic passage from Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, 
extortioners, unjust, adulterer, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The one who exalts himself, like the Pharisee, is the one that Jesus points out, trusts in himself for his righteousness. Mm -hmm. I did this. I do this. I, 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 I. Whereas the, the tax collector, uh, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He humbled himself because he knew he could not trust in himself. He knew himself to be a sinner. The Pharisee knew himself to be righteous because he trusted in himself. That's mm -hmm. not the way to go. So the tax collector doesn't say, help me believe in myself. He says, God be merciful. What we need is God's mercy. And it never comes by trusting in, believing in ourselves. But like the tax collector, we confess while aiming our prayer toward him who is merciful. Then there's this, forgive yourself. And this begs the question, who can forgive sins? As we shall see, only two, God and ourselves. But we are never told or commanded to forgive ourselves, but others. But first, look at this classic passage on the forgiveness of sin from Mark 2, first 12 verses. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could, got, could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed to the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Right. They asked the right question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But they ask it without discerning the true nature of Jesus. The paralytic man clearly wasn't believing in himself for healing, much less his sins. Uh, obviously not believing in his healing because that's why he was brought to Jesus. Through faith in another, he got both in Jesus. God alone can forgive sins, and he does it through his son. Now, just to drive this point home so we'll make it it's clear, Luke 7, 41 through 50. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to them, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, 
But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He said to the woman, Your faith, where? Placed where? Who's, what's the object of her faith? It's Jesus. It's clear throughout the whole story. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. How foolish would it be for Jesus to say, her, say to her, You need to forgive yourself. You really need to do that. We can never forgive ourselves for we're not God or believe in ourselves. We are, however, required to forgive others. Mm -hmm. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. There you go. That's the one we should take to heart. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We skip over the latter part there. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, now, we're going to read the end of a, another parable in Matthew 18. This is the one of the servant who literally owned, uh, owed his master millions of dollars. And the master is going to sell him and his wife and children and put him in prison and all that. And the uh, servant just cries and, and sobs. And so his master has compassion and forgives him. Then the servant, who just was forgiven millions and millions of dollars of debt, went out and found somebody who owed him a kind of a debt that could be paid off in a reasonable amount of time, choked him and all that. Mm -hmm. The other servants said, well, that's not right. And they told the master and the master got after him and said, no, no, forget it. You know, I forgave you and you can't go out and, and, and you go out and do this with your, your, uh, your friend who serves you. Mm -mm. So we come then to Matthew 18, 34 through 35. And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Yes. What the Bible insists on is not we forgive ourselves. It never says that. We've got to forgive others. We've got to forgive others. Mm. Uh, or we'll spend time in God-ordained judgment until we pay that debt. So says the parable. Only God can forgive our sins, and it's to him we turn to seek that forgiveness. A person who cannot forgive himself is a person caught up in the punishment of pride. Quote, I'm not worthy to be forgiven. It's that kind of a whiny thing. Well, no one is. Jesus didn't die for us because we're worthy. Listen to these sobering words from Luke 17, 7 through 10. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him who he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Amen. Notice, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, meaning I'm not going to tell you that you are this. You're going to tell you that you are this. <laughs> so the one time we get to speak to ourselves, it's not about believing, loving, or, or yeah. forgiving. It's saying, I confess, I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done what was my duty. Absolutely. And if God sent Jesus to die for our sins, who are we to contradict God Almighty? We are not worthy, but Christ's death shows us that we're not worthless. 
We must never confuse unworthy with worthless. We're redeemable. Think of the parable of the prodigal son as father. The son rehearses his prayer. He gets to the father and he tells him, I'm unworthy to be your son. And he knew that to be the case. He was unworthy. I am not worthy, he says to his father, to be your son. And what does the father do? He restores him to the family because God, the father, treasures him and views him not as worthless, but as a son brought back from the dead. So, maybe we should love ourselves. Self-love is really condemned by the scripture. 2 Timothy 3, first five verses. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedience to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. There you go. Notice that love of self leads the list. And the last one he mentions is lovers of pleasure, since both of them are the same and lead to all the other forms of ungodliness that's in between those two statements. And of course, loving self, as Paul points out, as the, uh, an appearance of godliness, uh, you know, we, we, people are exhorted to love themselves. I, I got to learn to love myself. It sounds, it sounds spiritual, doesn't it? Mm. That's the whole point. When he says godliness, he means it's, it sounds spiritual. And then he says, but there's no power. There's no power. What loving yourself has is a bottomless pit of self. Scriptures never command us to love ourselves. It assumes we already do. And that kind of self-love is meant to be used as a guide to love others, listen carefully, Mark 12, 28 through 31. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, how, how do I know to, lo to love my neighbor? Do I need to go to the rabbinical schools? Do I need to go to a modern seminary? Do I need to take a correspondence course or watch a video on YouTube? What do I need to know to love my neighbor? Mm. Well, very simple. How do you want to be loved? It's, it's right there, God-given. There's no other commandment greater than these says Jesus, the command to love God and to love neighbor according to how we also love ourselves. So even if there was a command to love yourself, it's not on the greatest list, but of course there is no command to love self. So no command to love self, but to love others as we already love ourselves, meaning how do we wish to be treated? Justly, lovingly, mercifully, fairly? Yes, of course. We know how we want to be treated, so we know automatically how to act toward others Jesus sums up that commandment this way in Matthew 7, 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Succinct paraphrase of the second command. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Meaning there is no other teaching about how to treat others than what Jesus has given here in Matthew 7, 12. And the law and the prophets never talk about the need to love yourself. 
God has given us a built-in psychological guide as to how to love others based on the truth that we already know what we want and how we need to be treated. Uh, people who uh, don't do this are called egotistical, self-absorbed, self-centered, or just plain selfish. But uh, they're ignoring what they have been given as a knowledge by God of their true self that we want to be treated right, fairly. We want to be loved. So um, if we're not doing that, then, you know, we are making ourselves the center of everything. Mm -hmm. This kind of love moves us into the realm of Satan, who was and still is that evil spirit who truly loves himself. Listen to 1 Timothy 3.6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Yes. Uh, here is a good proverb that uh, helps us understand this. Proverbs 16.18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Yes, if there ever was a haughty spirit, it's Satan. Mm -hmm. um, so this is not about Satan condemning us. It's about the reason why Satan himself was condemned. His power to condemn us was over by the cross of Jesus, the resurrection, and the ascension. Listen to Revelation 12, 7 through 12. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Right, so Satan can no longer <clears throat> condemn us. And that was true when uh, Paul wrote that passage in 1 Timothy 3.6. So when we ask what does the passage mean, there seems to be among commentators some ambiguity. It means this is the reason why Satan was condemned. He had pride and he was condemned in his pride. Here's a good example of that from the Old Testament. The king of Babylon uh, is the subject of a prophecy in Isaiah and it shows what self-love is all about. We're gonna have Randy read Isaiah 14, three and four and then verses 12 through 15. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Yes, five I wills in that section there, verses 12 through 15. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. An ego driven by self-centered love of self who's been denied the power he so desperately looks for and behind all such kings, as the Bible clearly teaches, stands, stands Satan from whom they derive their self-love, a being who understands nothing about self-denial. That's Satan. Listen to Luke 9, 23 through 25. 
And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Yes, um, self-love. There's a passage in Philippians 2 that just occurred to me where Paul says, view other people as more important than yourself. How hard that is for some of us to do at times. Yeah, some bet. people can't see beyond their mirror of themselves. Right. And that's Satan. He thinks he's the most important being around. Yeah. So Satan's self-love, also known as the sin of pride, is the reason why we are never told to love ourselves, but to deny ourselves and put Jesus first. Two passages in the New Testament dealing with our need to humble ourselves also mention Satan, the devil to whom humbleness is unknown, but he wishes to get us to put ourselves first like him nonetheless. James 4, 6 and 7. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Yes, our power against Satan is our own humbleness, mm -hmm. submitting ourselves to God, not believing ourselves, forgiving ourselves, loving ourselves. From a spirit who exalts himself, the only recourse is humility. So we must be humble before the Lord. Peter picks up on this as well with the same context of Satan. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 9. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In his great pride of self-love, Satan is wanting to devour us, our faith and witness. Resist him, meaning don't love self so much that God is not first. The church at Ephesus, book of Revelation, chapter 2, Jesus is writing a letter to them, and he condemns them for several things. But above all, because they have left their first love, loving God. That's the main condemnation. I'm sure if the Antichrist were writing to Ephesus, he would tell them they just need to love themselves more so they can be blessed. They just need to forgive themselves for whatever errors they have, and they just need to believe in themselves. Hmm. Our faith, our forgiveness, and love do not originate with us, but with him. 1 John 4, verses 10 and 19. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love because he first loved us. Our faith, our forgiveness, and love do not originate with us, but with him. We love because he first loved us. We forgive others because he forgave us. We put our faith in him because we cannot trust us. That's the Christian expectation. Well, thanks, Jim. You've given us a lot to think about, and it's not me, myself, and I. <laughs> if you have questions or comments, please send those to us in the comments on the comment section of each podcast, or send us an email at events and expectations. That's all one word events and expectations at gmail.com. We will use your question or comment where possible, and we will certainly always answer you. This has been Current Events and Christian Expectations, and until next time, keep looking up.